Our scripture reading this afternoon comes from the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. Hebrews, chapter 11. Often called the Hall of Faith. And we'll be reading from verse 1 through verse 16, and I'll be preaching from verse 13 to 16. So Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, starting at verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going, By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of the heavens and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. This is the word of God. You have probably heard the phrase at one time or another, an accusation that someone is too heavenly-minded to be of any earthly good. Now, whatever merit that phrase might have in certain circumstances, in certain ways that it's used, we need to be very careful about such a statement because the Bible never says it. In fact, the Bible says the very opposite. The danger that Scripture warns us away from is rather that we would be too earthly-minded to be of any heavenly good. The great danger that we face as Christians is not that we would spend so much time thinking about heaven but that we would be so caught up in this life that we would lose sight of heaven. 
The Lord Jesus in Mark 4 gave us the parable of the sower and he spoke about the seed that was choked out by thorns and he said this. He said, they are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. It is heavenly mindedness that we so desperately need. It is heavenly mindedness that we must seek and pursue as Christians. It is heavenly mindedness that will make us truly useful Christians on this earth. And it's to heavenly mindedness that this passage in Hebrews 11 points us to. The book of Hebrews was written to Christians who were facing pressure to turn away from Christ. They were facing persecution and pressure to turn to the Old Testament ceremonies once again. And the author throughout the book has been setting forth Christ as the glorious fulfillment of all the Old Testament scriptures, all that they pointed to. And he has been stressing that it is faith in him alone that will make us strong in temptation, that will give us strength to press on in our journey towards heaven. He has been saying Christ is all-sufficient, as was prayed earlier. Christ is all-sufficient, but we must believe. We, the just, shall live by faith, not by sight. And as the author gets to chapter 11, he begins to deal more directly with this idea of faith. He gives it a definition as we read, and then he begins to illustrate it with examples. And he's emphasizing that it's always been about faith. Whether in the Old Testament, whether in the New Testament, the life of the godly has always been a life of faith. And so he begins with the example of the patriarchs, and then in our passage, starting at verse 13, he gives us a summary description of the character of these of the faith of these men. And he emphasizes this, this exact thing, that their faith was indeed a heavenly-minded faith. And of course, his argument is that the faith is the same in all ages, and so what he has to say has much to teach us about the nature of true faith. So I want to look at three things that this passage teaches us about faith. First, I want to look at the foundation of true faith, then the character of true faith, and then the result of true faith. Foundation, the character, and the result. So first, the foundation of faith is the promises of God. The foundation of faith is the promises of God. Look at verse 13. It says, All these died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. The faith of these men was built upon the promises of God. It was what God had said. God had promised, and they trusted the character of the one who had spoken. You know, it cannot be emphasized enough, whenever we talk about faith, that the strength of faith, that the worth of faith, is only good insofar as the object that it's set upon is strong, is trustworthy. Right? If I had a chair here, and I I threw myself on it with full confidence that it would hold me, if it was a weak chair, I'm going down. But if it's a strong chair, I can come up with really weak faith and, you know, test it out and lean on it a little bit before I place my full weight on it. If it's a strong chair, it's going to hold me. Faith is dependent upon its object. Well, the faith of these men had a strong foundation. It was, they were rooted in the unfailing word of God. And the text tells us that these men died in this faith. 
That is, they were so firmly rooted in God's promises that death itself could not break that trust. And so as they lay on their deathbeds, they had not seen the arrival of the Messiah. They had not seen the fulfillment of the promises, many of them. And yet they remained absolutely convinced that the foundation upon which they were building their faith stood firm. God would not fail them. And so the question we need to ask is how did they go about building on this foundation? How did they, how did they build on this foundation of God's promises? Well, the author sets before us two things, two acts that comprise their, their work of believing. First, we're told that they saw the things promised. That is, they beheld them. They set their eyes upon them. God's promises caught their attention. God spoke and they listened. You know those times when you're engrossed in a task and you're working away and, and you're thinking everything, everything here and then someone speaks to you and they call your name and they start saying something to you and you look at them and you're kind of nodding along with what they say but your mind is still over here and you don't get anything that they say. It all passes over your head. That was not the result. That was not the response of these men to God's word. God's promises came and it grabbed a hold of their attention. They looked, they gazed, and the promises of God filled their minds and other interests fell away. And so we learn from this that true faith is not a half-hearted thing. True faith is not a half-hearted thing. It's not a glance. It's not a fleeting look. No, true faith fixes its eyes upon God's promises. When God is working faith in someone, his word gets their attention. And so this is the first response of budding faith. It is one of beholding, one of giving heed, undivided attention to what God has spoken. But the second thing we see is that they greeted the things promised. We're told they didn't receive the things promised, but they seen them and they greeted them from afar. This word translated greeted has the idea of warmly welcoming a friend, of reaching out and pulling one or it to oneself. And so the New King James translates it as they embraced them. And so this is the second act of faith. It embraces the promises of God as your own. It applies it to your heart. The hearts of these men cleave to these promises. This wasn't a grudging, well, I guess I better listen because it is God speaking after, after all. No, these men joyfully grabbed hold of what God had said. Jesus said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. They looked forward in faith and they saw that the promise was coming of a redeemer who would set them free, who would bring them into the city that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And they rejoiced and they took hold of these promises as their own. God had promised not merely a savior, but God had promised them a savior. And so these then are the two acts that comprise true faith in the promises of God. First, faith fixes its full and undivided attention on God's word. And then secondly, faith reaches out, grabs hold of God's promises and says, they're mine. Christ is not merely the savior, Christ is my savior. And so then I would ask you, do you want your faith to grow? Do you want the reality of God's promises to be more and more real in your life, to have more and more substance in your life? Well, then you have to begin with act one, 
You must give God's word your attention. You must think upon his word. You must meditate upon his word. And you must focus upon the character of the one who has promised. But as you ponder, as you give it your attention, you can remember that these promises are yours, not on the basis of your performance, but on the basis of the Lord Jesus Christ. All the promises of God are yes and amen in him. So you can embrace them. You can embrace them. You can pull them to yourself and you can apply them to your own life and to your own heart. Now we need to realize what the author says here when he uses this phrase that they saw them and they greeted them from afar. Why does he say that? From afar. The author is drawing a comparison between these men, these patriarchs and us and he is in essence saying look at the faith of these men. They stood firm in faith even until death and they only had a few promises flickering as candles in the distance. They were way ahead of them and yet they stood firm unto death. Will you Hebrew Christians fall back in unbelief when you have seen the promises of God set before you as a great light piercing through the darkness? You have seen Christ manifest in the flesh. How much more reason do we have to pay attention to the promises of God. We have so much history behind us testifying to the faithfulness and the trustworthiness of God to his people. And in fact, we have seen many of these promises that the patriarchs patriarchs looked to. Many of those very promises have been fulfilled before our very eyes in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then on top of that, we have had promise upon promise heaped up. And now... We have an entire book of them. Think of the patriarchs. How much of the Bible did they have? They didn't have any of it written down, but they had just little bits, a few promises here and there. We have a book full of promises, each and every one of them signed and sealed with the blood of Jesus. We have so much reason to look, to focus, to give our attention to God's word. And we have so much reason to embrace them as our own. So true faith has a foundation. And that foundation is, and it always has been, the one thing that will never fail. The word of Almighty God. And true faith then builds upon that foundation. But the author goes on in his description of the faith of these men, and he teaches us another thing about true faith. And that is that the character of true faith is one of heavenly-mindedness. The character of true faith is one of heavenly mindedness. Look at the end of verse 13. It says, having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Now notice in verse 13 that this acknowledgement of there being strangers on the earth is connected to the other acts of faith. In a sense, this is the third step of true faith. It, uh, what is it? It sees, it greets, and then it acknowledges, and then it confesses. And so what the author is doing is he's drawing directly from the accounts of the patriarchs. This is the very thing that they confessed. In Genesis 23 Abraham says to the Hittites, he says, I'm a stranger and a foreigner among you. Genesis 47, Jacob stands before Pharaoh 
And he says, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of my fathers in the day of their sojourning. Sojourner, a pilgrim, an exile, a wanderer. They're saying, I am not settling here. This world is not my home. Why? Why did they make such a confession? Well, look at verse 14. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. They can make a confession that I am a wanderer and a stranger and a sojourner on this earth because I am seeking a different homeland. I am seeking a heavenly homeland. It's important that we see this. Too often, when people think of the Old Testament, we think that they were just going after physical promises and a physical land. But the author says no. Actually, a few verses earlier, he said that Abraham was looking forward. He was living in the land of promise, the land that God had promised him. He was living in that land, and yet he was living in tents. He was living as a sojourner because he was looking forward to a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. You see, the patriarchs understood that those earthly promises, earthly promises of Canaan, that they were simply representations of the place where God would have fellowship with his people. They were representations of a heavenly homeland. And that's why these men could continue to confess this even until death, because they knew that the promises stretched beyond death. Well, this is the confession of anyone who truly believes God's promises. When God grants a person the gift of faith, this one thing will change. Their treasure and their homeland will be in heaven. Faith will ruin the world for you. If you are here and you are not a believer and you are wrestling with the cost of following Jesus, know this, faith will ruin the world for you because its pleasures and its joys will never satisfy you because you are looking for a heavenly homeland. Your heart will be set upon heavenly rewards and heavenly joys. Just think about what God has done by his grace. It's a, it's a glorious thing. We, we talk in Ephesians 2. Paul sets before us that glorious statement that we are saved by grace through faith alone. And then he goes on and he says this, speaking about their pre-conversion life. And he says, remember that at that time, you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Before they believed, they were strangers to God. They were without God and they were without hope. But when they believed, what happened? Paul goes on and a few verses later, he says, but you're no longer strangers and aliens. You're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You see, a transfer of citizenship has taken place. Once at home in the world and a stranger to God, when faith comes in, when the Holy Spirit comes in and gives faith and life and your heart is set upon the promises of God, there's a change. And now you're at home with God and you're a stranger to the world because you cannot be both. It's an awesome reality as we think about it. To have our hearts set upon heaven, to long for the day in which we are settled in everlasting joy with God. And so Paul can say, our citizenship isn't in heaven. We are awaiting the coming of the Savior because our citizenship is there. It's not here. Brothers and sisters, do you long for your heavenly homeland? 
Do you long for the day that we will see Christ face to face? Do you long for that day when sin is wiped away and you see him with unsinning eyes, when you praise him with unsinning lips? If you have truly believed God's promises, you will be able to make this confession. I am a stranger and I am a foreigner on this earth. This world is not my home because the only homeland that will ever satisfy my heart is a homeland where Jesus is king. That's where I'm going. That's where my heart is set. Well, how will this confession evidence itself? Or a similar question, how do we test the measure of our faith, of the maturity of our faith in this regard? Well, one answer is look at your attitude to the world. Look at verse 15 and 16. It says, if they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. You see, the reality of the faith of these patriarchs was proved not merely in that they confessed with their lips that they were seeking a homeland in heaven, but that their lives displayed that this world had lost its flavor. And so we see Abraham and he's wandering through the wilderness for years and he's waiting for God's promises and most of them he never sees fulfilled. Eventually he sees a son, but even that took many years. And at any point, Abraham could have thrown up his hands and said, that's it. I'm done waiting for God. I'm going back to Ur. At any point, and if you'll remember, that's exactly what the faithless Israelites did in the wilderness. They were done waiting for God. They said, we want to go back to Egypt. But that that wasn't the life of Abraham. Abraham had chances to go back, but the thought never even crossed his mind because he believed that God was trustworthy. And so he waited and he waited and he waited and he looked to the promises of God and he continued to wander as a stranger and a pilgrim because his eyes were fixed on an unseen reward. And so the test of faith and the degree of heavenly mindedness is in our attitude to the world, is seen in our attitude to the world. Does your life testify that your treasure is in heaven? Can people around you look at you and say, that man, that woman is not living for the pleasures of this world. They're not living for its joys. They're not living for its comforts. They're looking to something else. Now again, this is not saying you can't enjoy God's good gifts with thankfulness. But what are you living for? What really drives you? What really has your attention? I want to apply this to three areas of our life to test yourself, to search your heart. First, your mind. What do you think about? To where does your mind gravitate? Do you think about heaven? Do you think much about Christ? Or is your mind so consumed with the cares of this life that Christ really finds little place? Again, I understand you have jobs, you have tasks that require your attention, but in those times where your mind is free from those things, where does it go? Does it go to Christ? Does it ever go to Christ? One of the evidences of a true and a growing and a mature faith is that God and his word, his glory, his promises will increasingly fill your mind. And you know it. Think about the most mature Christians in your life. They are people who are consumed with the truth of the the word of God. Even if they have a secular calling and they work in this world, the thing that really has their attention, that really consumes their mind is God and his word. 
does your mind reflect a heavenly-minded faith? Secondly, your will. Do the choices that you make reflect that your treasure is in heaven? If you had two options set before you, you could either enrich yourself and advance your, your state in this earth, or you could advance the kingdom in some way, which would you choose? How hard would it be for you to choose? How ready, how willing are you to deny yourself to grow spiritually? Do you ever witness, though it's uncomfortable, do you ever fast and pray saying, God, I want more of you? Do your choices reflect that your heart and your home are in heaven? Look at the example of Moses a few verses later, verse 24. We're told by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. He chose affliction over pleasure. He esteemed reproach over treasure. How do you do that? How does someone do that? He was looking to the reward by faith, the unseen reward of heaven. Do your choices reflect heavenly-minded faith? Thirdly, do your affections. What do, you, what do you love? What brings you joy? What do you love more, to worship God with the people of God gathered in his presence or to spend time with your friends, to go and participate in your favorite sport or entertainment? What causes you more joy? when the circumstances line up just right in your life or when you hear that someone has been converted to Christ, when you get a new toy, a new boat, tool, or book, or when you learn a new and fresh truth about the Lord Jesus, what makes you sorrow more? Physical suffering or sin? What do you desire more? To be happy or to be holy? Are your affections moved by heavenly spiritual realities. Brothers and sisters, we have a desperate need to be a heavenly-minded people. The world needs to see, the world needs to see the worth of Christ displayed in our lives by the choices that we make, by the things that we think about, by the way that we live, that our lives must say that God is trustworthy. He has promised. We preach the gospel, an everlasting gospel of everlasting joy, But does our life reflect that? Maybe like me, you come to this point and you ask yourself, okay, how do I grow? (laughs) Because I'm not what I should be. How do I grow in this, Lord? Well, we go back to point one, the foundation. Go back to the promises, brothers and sisters. Go back to the promises and fix your mind and think about them and exercise your faith upon them. Listen to his promises. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there is not one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this age and in the age to come eternal life. He says in John 16, Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. 1 John 3, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. 
Let us be those who are giving our minds and our hearts to these promises, that we're fixing our eyes upon them, we're meditating upon them, we're crying out to God for illumination in them, that more and more our lives would be marked by heavenly-minded faith. So we've seen the foundation, and we've seen the character of faith, but there's one more thing that the author has to teach us about true faith, and that is the result The result of true faith is that God will not be ashamed to be called your God. Look at verse 16. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Isn't that a glorious reality? The God of the universe unashamedly saying, those people are mine. Those are my people. Now notice the therefore, though. The reason God is not ashamed is because they are not seeking this country. He's not ashamed of them because of the heavenly-minded nature of their faith. Now, this is not saying that you have to have perfect faith, that there's never a hint or, or a doubt, that there's never a stumble, that there's never a sense in which you look back and your affection is placed for a moment on things of this world. We look at the lives of the patriarchs, and it's clear that these men were sinful, stumbling men. And yet God would boldly say, I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. I am unashamed of them, not because they are perfect, but because they have believed me. And so again, this is not saying that the moment we stumble, our eyes are fascinated by worldly things, that God casts us off. But it is saying, it is saying that the type of faith that God delights in is a faith that results in our casting off this world it is a result that's, sorry, it is a faith that says, I have taken my affections off of this world and I've placed them on God. And that makes sense, doesn't it? That makes sense. If we call ourselves Christians and we say we believe and, and we've been given all these promises of eternal joy and blessing and yet our lives show that our hearts are still in this world and we're really unwilling to deny ourselves for, for more of God, then are we not saying, Well, God has spoken, God has said it, but he's not really worthy of my trust. And is God not rightly ashamed of such an empty profession? And this is, again, the very thing that the authors point to. We go back to that generation of Israelites. They fell short, the author says, through unbelief. They didn't believe God. And so they bellyached and they complained and they grumbled over the trials that they had to go through because they wanted meat and they wanted water and they wanted Egypt. And God says of them, they are a people who go astray in their hearts and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. That's a searching reality. If you are perfectly at home in this world, you talk about what this world talks about, you laugh about what this world laughs about, you find enjoyment in what this world finds enjoyment in. And if there's no sense in which the world looks at you and says they're different, that person is different, they're not living for what we're living for, then my friend, you may name the name of God, but he is ashamed to be called your God and he has not prepared a city for you. If that is the case with you, then beware. Take seriously the word of God, not just the promises, but the warnings, which Hebrews is also full of. But on the other hand, 
if you have embraced the promises by faith and the world has become dross to you, and you can say with the Apostle Paul, this world is crucified to me and I to the world, then God is not ashamed of you. If you unashamedly own him before this world, he will unashamedly own you on the final day of judgment. He will say, well done, good and faithful servant. And again, I want to reiterate, this is not just for those who do this perfectly. You may feel the weakness of your faith and it might grieve you. You might think about what I've said and and it pains you that it doesn't describe you as it ought. And yet you can still say, you can still say yes. Yes, I want Jesus more than this world. I do desire to be with him. He is more important to me than anything that this world has to offer. Yes, though faltering, I am willing to deny myself that I might have more of Christ. Then for you, dear believer, God is not ashamed of you. He points you out to the angels as it were and says, look at that one. See her, see him, they're mine. Yes, stumbling, yes, faltering, but they're mine because they've laid hold of my promises. They've believed, they've truly believed and it's evidenced in their life. For that person, God is not ashamed to be called their God. One final word of exhortation. Brothers and sisters, if God is not ashamed to be called our God, let us not be ashamed to be called his people. How much reason we give God to be ashamed of us. Day after day, we give him reason to be ashamed of us, and yet he's not. He owns us as his own if we hold to his promises. And how can we ever be ashamed of him when through 6,000 years of church history, he has never failed in his promises to his people? Let us be stirred by the faithfulness of God, the trustworthiness of God and his astonishing grace. And let us press on, fixing our minds, fixing our hearts, fixing our faith upon his promises, taking hold of them, walking in them, living in them. Heaven is before us. The world is behind us. Let us live as citizens of another kingdom and another world. And as we seek to grow And mature in our faith, let us remember that the foundation of faith is the promises of God. The character of faith is one of heavenly mindedness. And the result of faith is that God is not ashamed to be called our God. Let us pray. Father in heaven, O Lord, stamp eternity on our eyeballs. Father, we are a people who often have our minds in the dust. We pray that you would lift our hearts, lift our minds, lift our affections, O God. Teach us to prize heavenly treasures and heavenly rewards. Lord, teach us to see this world for what it is, painted beauties that can never satisfy, that cannot be the foundation of our lives, that offer no enduring life, enduring satisfaction. Father, please help us. Help us in this, Lord. We're not what we should be, and we live in a world that is so saturated by worldliness, by sin, and the seducing whisper of this world pulls us away so quickly. Oh God, make us a people who are ready and willing to take up our cross and follow for your name and for your glory. We thank you for the glorious promises that you have made. Father, give us faith. Increase our faith for the sake and for the glory of our King Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen.